This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, CFL Hall of Famer John Cordish joins us here to talk about life after football, creating a business community for black Albertans and Calgarians too, and setting some really cool examples for community building for all kinds of different groups around Canada. Ukraine, Stefan Berko joins us. He's an advocate, talks about alcohol bans, what that's like, temporary ban on hard liquor, but not all booze, plus the chaos and devastation inside Mariupol and how Ukrainians are fighting back in Russia as well and try to get back to normal and get the economy fired up. Steve Stebbing, what the hell should we watch this weekend? Joins us here on the shift, tells us what we should pick for the movies, what we shouldn't in some cases, and Apollo 10 and a half, a space movie about a kid going to space, Morbius, and so much more here on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. The weeks tick by since Russia moved into Ukraine. Joining us from Lviv, Ukraine. It's on the western side of the country. Stepan Berko is an advocate with Deezer Foundation. Stepan, are you there? Yes. Hi, Shane. Welcome back. It's wonderful to hear your voice. Same here. How are um, how are you doing, man? It's been uh, another week of more of the same. Uh, there's a, a phrase we have here in, in Canada and in North America that we call Groundhog Day. It was from the Bill Murray movie from so long ago where he would wake up and it was the same day over and over and over again. I can only imagine that Groundhog Day um, is uh, must feel very real for you in Ukraine. Yeah, we have the same saying in Ukrainian language as well. And uh, you're right. Uh, every day uh, you you wake up you check the news you, you you check the information where where the missile hits and where were the worst uh, fights um, and then you have a breakfast and you go to work and then when the air alarm uh, happens you you hide <laughs> that's mm-hmm. that's pretty much every day that's the day is it um, what, how do you say uh, your version of Groundhog Day in Ukrainian? Den babaka. See, that's fun. I love your language. It seems very complicated to me. What, now, you speak both so well, so which one is more difficult? Um, you mean uh, Ukrainian like or... And English. Hmm. From grammatic, from from the grammar point, it's definitely Ukrainian. Uh, English mm. is much uh, easier, but uh, from the point of uh, uh, spelling, English is horrible because even though <laughs> some that. words they sound the same, <laughs> the way they're written, it's like hell. Yeah, right. And Isn't I that think so it's, true? Yeah, it. Ha- it yeah, it is. It is. In Ukrainian oh. language, in most cases, what you hear is the way you write. Oh, see, that sounds nice. Uh, that sounds like a dream. Um, I heard an article or heard a report that in uh, Kiev that they um, they were going to allow alcohol. Is that a thing? Is there is there no alcohol in Lviv still? Because I'd heard that sort of they uh, uh, put in this prohibition, no alcohol, uh, when this all started. And... Um, and have you heard that too? Uh, are you allowed to have uh, drinks in Lviv? Uh, this makes me curious. Yeah, we we've had this uh, restriction since the war started in Lviv, 
and in I think it was all Western Western uh, regions. So no alcohol was allowed to be sold. Now, since few weeks, I think week or two, uh, in the region in Lviv region, it is allowed to sell uh, beer, but not strong alcohol. In Lviv, it's still not allowed to sell any alcohol. So when you go to uh, a bar, you won't be sold uh, anything to drink. But in Kiev, yes, I also heard that uh, they are lifting this ban um, either next week or this week. Um, how's that for a change of life for you? I realize that's not really about the war, but um, I don't, maybe you're not a drinker anyway, but that must be a wild change for everybody from the social aspect of just getting together and having drinks and, and, and all of that. I had also had, um, we've had a guest on who is a Canadian proprietor of Ukrainian vodka. And she, of oh. course, with everything, the production of vodka in Ukraine has stopped. And so that affects her business here because she, that's what she does. She sells, um, she sells, uh, Ukrainian vodka in Canada. Uh, that's where we had originally learned that, that this hard liquor had, had been stopped. So it must be a completely different way of being. We don't, we don't think about those little things when we talk about adapting and, and war and what you're going through, the little habits. Um, yeah, you know, um, when you, when, when you meet with friends, sometimes you go for a coffee, sometimes you go for a beer. And then, you know, the second option is not available anymore. So you go for a coffee. Uh, I think this, I mean, I think this decision to ban alcohol uh, was the right thing to do at the very beginning because, you know, people were in shock. And I can assume that some would, uh, you know, drink a lot to, you know, kind of forget what's going on around. So... You know, we're still in, 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 in between the war and different people react differently in these uh, kind of circumstances. But I think we have to gradually lift these bands because, um, you know, we have to learn to live in, the, in, in this uh, uh, wartime. And one, I know that one of the reasons that this ban was lifted in region, the region, and I think in all other Western regions, is that, uh, you know, producing alcohol is a very important part of the economy. And since we're trying to uh, boost or, you know, restart the economy in these war times, uh, alcohol production, alcohol uh, sale is very important. I probably would. I'd probably be that guy, you know, for a night before bed, you know, glass of wine, you know, I like Irish yeah. whiskey, right? And then end of a long day, you have a bad day, then you, you know, maybe you're carrying a little bit with you. I, I'm just being honest that I probably would drink a little bit more. I know I did during the pandemic as well. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of get that. And the last thing you also probably need is some drunkard running around at nighttime when there's a curfew, um, being a hooligan, of course, um, with all kinds of defense measures and, and, uh, you know, people, um, on edge with guns around. Uh, I can imagine that's probably a recipe for uh, some not good things to happen. Uh, Stepan Berko is in Lviv in the eastern, western part of Ukraine. There has been all kinds of stories about Mariupol. 
um, that they're evacuating people on buses. The Russians are, I'm making uh, air quotes with my fingers, stepping that you can't see, um, uh, regrouping, or no, uh, withdrawing, and but in fact regrouping and all those things. So what are you hearing from Mariupol? Uh, is it as bad as they say most of the buildings are decimated and, and it, people are just desperate to get out now? Yeah, Mariupol is pretty much destroyed to the ground. Um, a friend of mine, she is from Mariupol. Uh, she was born there. She she uh, she studied with me in Kiev uh, at the university, and she was trying for the last two weeks to rescue her parents who stayed in Mariupol, and she had no connection with them whatsoever. She couldn't she couldn't call. She couldn't find anyone who knew where they were, and finally this week. She managed to contact some person who knew where her parents were, and she found out that her dad, uh, you know, he died because of the mine explosion, and her mom is somewhere in Mariupol, and she 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 knows that as of like, you know, four or three days ago she was alive. So this is uh, this small story of my friend is a great illustration of what's going on in Mariupol. So heavy fighting continues and relatives from unoccupied territories are trying to find their loved ones and help them get out of, uh, out of the city. For example, yesterday I know that uh, my friend's mother, she managed to escape the city through a evacuation corridor and to get to a, a nearby village where they have at least food and water. So... Uh, she's still on the occupied territories by Russians, but she has food and water. And this, uh, you know, this seems to be like a, a much better place than Mariupol itself. So I would say that Mariupol is uh, still a very hot spot. And there are so many people there that are hiding in, in basements and... Uh, are trying to find a way to get evacuated from the city. Regarding the Kyiv and uh, <clears throat> this so-called uh, withdrawal from Kyiv region and Chernihiv region, uh, yes, we've had uh, this official um, uh, information from Ukrainian armed forces that there are less and less uh, Russian troops in these regions, but they are still there. So it may be uh, also a trick, you know, when you withdraw and then you attack with more fire, uh, might. So um, we'll see in nearest weeks, I think, how this will work. And I'm, I'm, I want to tell you, you know, when, when people who live in Kiev and they had, they had to evacuate to Western Ukraine heard that uh, Russian troops are withdrawing from from the north of Kiev, from many people I heard this, you know, hope that, oh, soon we could return home, soon we can, could, can return to Kiev. And uh, I think I had this just for a moment, also this uh, dream of having the opportunity to go back home, you know, as soon as like in weeks or a month. But, you know, uh, this, this is... Uh, like a psychological thing, when you see something, uh, some signs of the situation on the ground getting better, you 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 know you hope 
that uh, you can go home. But in fact, the situation in and around Kiev is still really dangerous. For example, just just at the beginning of this week, uh, the village that I lived in, right near on, on, in the suburbs of Kiev, got shelled by Russian missiles. And uh, uh, a building, a residential building right near my uh, uh, where I live was was heavily hit by rockets. So, uh, despite the fact that Russians are either withdrawing or regrouping, life uh, in and around Kiev is still dangerous. There are so many stories of that. This whole, um, but we were chatting here uh, this week about basically what we've learned is that everything that you hear from Russia plan for the opposite. Um, because that seems to be the case. There are other stories that uh, have come out, and I, this is, uh, I'm, I'm cautious that this one is gossip. It's not verified. Um, I did look it up that there has been some strikes. I mean, you hear about, you know, all the nasty things that have happened um, in Ukraine. And then there are some reports uh, that in Belgrade, there's um, a fire. I looked it up at an oil plant there. Now that's inside Russia. I don't know about you. This is not my country, but I got to tell you, if Ukrainians are, uh, you know, tiptoeing across the border and blowing up some Russian things, I got to tell you, it, it sort of makes you cheer a little bit louder. I don't know if that works in favor, and I'm not asking you to pretend that you're a political scientist at all, but as Ukrainian, um, do you hear about those stories? Are there any other stories that you've heard about Ukrainians sort of fighting back along that border with Russia and try to take out some critical infrastructure? Yes, this uh, the fire at the oil depot in Belgorod is like number one news today. Um, yesterday, or the day before yesterday, uh, a big uh, military warehouse was also hit in Belgorod, where they were storing ammunition. Um, and uh, of course, we have no official confirmation from Ukrainian armed forces. And I don't think that we will get anything from them saying like, yes, we have hit these facilities because uh, they are situated, they're located in on the Russian territory. And, you know, uh, Russia might use it as a, you know, additional pretext for something, but, you know, there could be nothing. I would say there could be nothing more serious than what they did already. But uh, from the you know point of view of general citizen and people, people are cheering. Every news of uh, Ukrainian military, uh, mm, you know, being victorious in some spots or doing something um, to stop Russian military, including hitting like their critical infrastructure, is like a. a little holiday for uh, for Ukrainians yeah. everybody speaks about that yeah yeah and I mean Russians were hitting Ukrainian oil depots for the last I think week or two uh, they've destroyed many uh, um, oil warehouses and military facilities also and not also military facilities but also warehouses with uh, food uh, s- stored for you know, critical days so i think if ukrainian military is responding with the you know with the same actions that's probably fair to do 
Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, there's got to be a piece of you that just inside you're like sort of, I guess we would say, yeah, take that. And uh, when it comes to slowing down the infrastructure, that's got to work in favor of everything else. Stepenberko is in Lviv in the um, western part of Ukraine. Um, what's, uh, what's next, Stepan? I mean, you've heard all of the things from around the world about all of the different uh, you know, countries and how they're helping and, and at the risk of sounding like we are uh, in Groundhog Day of what Ukrainian need, uh, Ukraine needs. I'm okay with that. So you're there, um, you're helping, you're trying to work during the day and, and help and volunteer and, and, and get all the um, support there. Um, what, what do Canadians need to know? The important question. We still got to stay with that part. You know, I was talking to uh, my colleagues at uh, our organization and some other uh, colleagues from other civil society uh, sector and uh, universities, academia. And uh, what we think the main uh, challenge right now for us is that American and Canadian and German and other Western societies and politicians, political leaders, they uh, are, they agree with the idea that Ukraine can win this war and Russia can be defeated. Because it seems that to many politicians, it's like uh, uh, there's some stereotype that if you... Uh, if there is a country with a nuclear power uh, like Russia, they cannot lose wars. They can be defeated in some battles, but they cannot lose wars. And I think if uh, Western societies get acquainted with this idea that Russia can lose and Ukraine can win, then they won't uh, be fear won't fear to provide Ukraine with more substantial military help. Because what we've been hearing from the U.S., Great Britain, and other countries, including Canada, that are supporting us already, that we will not be uh, getting any uh, sophisticated, uh, long-range military equipment that would allow us to um, uh, throw Russians out of the territory they conquered after the February 24th. And this is what we need, because if Russia is allowed to stay where they were, uh, then, you know, this is uh, this will only encourage them for further military operations, even if this war ends in a month or two. But they will regroup, they will resupply their military, and they will do the same thing, not only to Ukraine, but to other countries. So my... My uh, main call to Canadians and to other uh, free democratic societies is to, you have to believe that Ukraine can win and Russia can lose. I believe you. And um, I know that we are, our audience here, Stepan, looks forward to hearing your words. Um, you're very inspiring. Uh, your ability to be peaceful in, in your tone and in your heart as you share us with us. Uh, such an amazing story about your country is inspiring to us uh, to look in the mirror, I think, and to pay attention differently. We did have a guest on. I'll remind everybody at shiftheads.ca with Veronica, who is fundraising. She's a Ukrainian, and she is in Vancouver. 
and she's fundraising her own for bulletproof vests for Ukrainians who are volunteering to go into the military as well. So if you go to shiftheads.ca, you can see that on our Facebook page, and everyone can uh, help out if that's appropriate for them. Stephen Berko in Lviv. Uh, thanks for being here, brother. I look forward to chatting again soon. Thank you. And uh, I wish all Canadian Canadians to uh, have a nice week. And when we talk next week, maybe I'll have some good news. This is the Shift Podcast. Through the course of my life, I've been very lucky to meet a lot of really cool people that have lived lives, lived other lives, lived new lives, and lived multiple lives in a lot of ways. That's what it seems like nowadays. Maybe that's just me getting older. Uh, one of the, the guys that I've been able to meet um, through friends, well, we met on our own and then we met through friends again, and it's really kind of nice, is John Cornish. John is former Calgary Stampeder, a Hall of Famer. You were in the presence of Canadian football royalty. And um, proudly Canadian too, and joins us here on the shift. Hey, John. Thanks for having me, Shane. It's nice to see you. It's really great. I love your sweater. People can't see that on the radio, but just trust <laughs> me, it's a nice sweater. <laughs> Beautiful. So you are uh, ex football guy now. Um, how does that resonate? I guess as a football player, you know, there's always going to be a point when you're not a football player anymore. Um, you know, Herm Harrison used to always say that, right? He used to always say that when uh, Herm, if you know football and Canadian football, you know Herm Harrison's name. Herm used to always say, my job is just to prepare these young men for what's next. And um, so I guess you always know that there's going to be a life after football, isn't there? I would actually, you know, I argue differently, Shane. A lot of football players imagine themselves being professional football players someday. And that's their goal in life. Upon achievement of that, and then sort of that idea doesn't really fade as you're playing. You know, I'm I'm 35 years old, still playing in the CFL. I still believe I have it. Why would I retire? A lot of players actually face themselves uh, with the situation where they don't retire by their own choice. Because, it, you know, I, I think as, a, as, as any sport player, you mm-hmm. yours are going to think you have it. I know it's nature, uh, nature of being a pattern. It's, it's I suppose, yeah. yeah, you know, and so like I really uh, agree with Herm Harrison. Like in 2012, I started working with uh, TD Bank as a teller. Right, I was you know at the peak of my game, and I was a teller. Um, I thought it was important that we utilize the time that the CFL gives you. Uh, we actually didn't start practice until 8:30. We'd, mm-hmm. we'd meet and stuff, but we'd be done by 1 p.m. Because you're sort of in the old school CFL when you had to work, you know, multiple jobs, they needed to give you time to work those jobs. I fully took advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's led you on quite a career path. Now, uh, further to that, um, you have uh, become uh, created and been a part of the Calgary Black Chambers. Now, um, help us understand this is a, a, this is a project of love for you. Uh, it's deeply rooted inside you. It matters to you. There was one story you told me that I hope you'll share about uh, why this all started. But tell us about the Calgary Black Chambers and what is it? Uh, I'm, does Is there one in every city? Does every like is this unique to Calgary? Should there be one? Like, what is it and what do we need to know about it? That's a great question. The Calgary Black Chambers is a society of black professionals and entrepreneurs who saw the need to establish a nonprofit organization for black professionals and entrepreneurs, students and upcoming professionals to have the resources available to support their endeavors. And we have our four key values and sort of supported that goal. We wanted to bring people together. 
you know, first and foremost, that was a reason why the Calgary Black Chambers was created, fellowship, right? To, to tighten the knit of our community. We also un- understood there was a need to provide a voice for our, our, our fellowship that we had developed. And that's where our advocacy value comes in. Advocacy is currently led by a, a good friend, Warren Liberty Scott. He has worked hard to create uh, the messaging and the relationships that we develop in terms of really changing the narrative uh, for both Black and BIPOC people here in Alberta. And then we understood that there was a need to support our students. Uh, and sort of the, this is two veined in that we have our scholarship support. You know, there was, there was this big need uh, for support for our students. A lot of black students, in fact, most black students believe they can finish university, but only about 50% thought they could with mm. the financial support they had available. Let's remedy that. And then uh, sort of uh, with our last uh, prong is, is mentorship. Uh, we currently have a partnership with the Calgary Catholic School Board, and they are um, working with us in terms of getting their students actually prepared for real life. You, you know, I think, uh, you know, you go to school, you get your education that allows you to get into university, but you never really get those soft skills that you're required to apply all the time at work, things like professionalism or communication skills, uh, problem solving, critical thinking in an ethical um, framework. You know, these are things that we're trying to uh, support all students that, that uh, applied at the Catholic school board to the program, about 250 of them. Um, we're trying to provide them the opportunity to, to really see what their office like would be like, what they want to achieve with their office life and really what they want their life to look like overall. That's quite remarkable. And um, just a bunch of folks who care coming together. Is that a safe assumption? Yeah, very much so. That's so cool. Um, Does this happen in every city or is this unique to our city um, that you and I live in? Um, Is there a bunch of cool dudes in Vancouver that do something similar? Have you met other groups that, that do this too? So the the chambers itself is modeled after the Alberta black, or sorry, the Atlanta black chambers. Um, we sort of based the name off of that. Um, but there are black chambers that exist within the States. In Toronto, there are numerous groups that fit this uh, sort of black professional network kind of description. Uh, the closest analog would be the Black uh, Business and Professional Association. Uh, they offer scholarships as well, and they have programs available to students. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. In, in Canada. Uh, we also can look to Edmonton. They have the Africa Center, uh, but its mission's a little bit different. It's more about supporting the community, less like very much uh, focused um, in our four values as we are. Mm-hmm. Well, the scholarship part's a big part of it. I want to talk about that in a second. Um, first, though, will you share the story about when you went to work downtown and you started and um, the one you shared with me about walking around downtown and feeling like you were the only black guy around and then you would see somebody else way down there and you're kind of like, why do we like, why is this community so broken up downtown in a professional life? Now, it turns out you found an entire community of folks, but it wasn't like that in the beginning. Can you tell that story and, and, and help us understand what you went through and what inspired you with this? So I grew up in New Westminster and in, in Vancouver, predominantly you know, white city in the eighties and nineties. Um, I, then when I went to high school, I had a lot of friends that were, you know, colored. Actually, my high school was, was a minority majority school. Um, and it was, it was, 
I felt like I looked like everybody else. That, that was that was cool. There, there's something to that. And then when I go down to the States, to University of Kansas, all of a sudden, I, there's black people that exist. When I was in when I was in high school, I was one of three black. In college, it was very different. I had the opportunity to interact with black people that looked like me. And somehow, culturally, we understood each other. Um, you know, I was I was raised by my you know, white mother. I, I have only white siblings. And I, I've always really imagined myself as white. But at the same time, I can interact with this whole different group with with other uh, kinds of ideas that, that resonate with me. And then we get down to uh, Calgary and, you know, I'm still playing on a team with with a lot of black people. And at this point, you know, I've been around black people my, a lot of my adult life. And then sort of looking at uh, how I retired, you know, very happy to going right into office life. You know, I, I had my retirement press conference and the next day I showed up at work downtown. But I noticed an immediate difference. Uh, uh, there was actually a, a lack of diversity in the place that I worked, which, which is very common in banks where their front lines look very diverse. And then as you go up uh, different rungs of uh, uh, the, the structure of the organization, you know, increasingly less diverse. I went around the plus 15, uh, you know, different events, different meetings. And I continue to see this, this lack of sort of diversity that I actually understood cal- to exist in Calgary. Only, at, uh, only after seeing one black person here, one black person there. But my wife actually suggested, you know, John, you've done for a lot of work for other groups. Why not try to support your own community? And like I said, you know, I, I was born white. I, I'm of mixed heritage. I very much am firmly mixed. Um, but I thought there was there was support that we could give to all the black professionals that we saw downtown in sparing fashions at random. Um, so at that point, I started reaching out to these people. When I saw a well-dressed black versus downtown, it's like, yo, we're, we're putting something together. We're going to meet at the petroleum club. Let's let's just see what happens. We ended up put, putting together 50 or so individuals that showed up. Everybody went around the circle and told the stories um, that they had experienced in their lives in Calgary, both both good and bad. And it was one of the most uh, heartwarming experiences I had ever experienced in my life. And, and sort of we decided at that point to sort of knock out some values and put together an organization that was going to move forward as sort of the narrative of all these professionals in the city. Now, that storyline for me as a white guy uh, doesn't make sense. There's always been people around that look like me, right? And as a guy who grew up on Vancouver Island, so I was surrounded by diversity out there. And then I went to Fort McMurray and there was actually a fair bit of diversity up there with the indigenous folks that I went to school with. And and then, um, you know, I was a DJ for a long time. And so that is also a very diverse world um, that, um, so I've been, uh, I would just say lucky to be surrounded by so many different people, cultures from around the world that I'm almost the other way around, right? Like I, um, I, I, I notice it if, if, uh, and I'm just calling it out for what it is for bias, right? That I notice it for what it is. If I'm not surrounded by people from different places, uh, I think that's exciting. I think it's really cool. So if I retell your story and I, this is where I think that we can, um, create connection for people who don't know your story, who don't understand that story, right. Of feeling like, uh, nobody, uh, people who don't look like me, I've got a friend, his name's Brandon Alexander. He's down in Los Angeles. He's an actor. And, um, when he saw Chadwick Boseman on the screen, he realized, uh, wow, that's a, because he was a dancer and he said, wow, that's a guy who looks like me. And 
that inspired him to become an actor because that's when he actually realized that could be me. Now, it turns out he's actually a bit of a doppelganger for Chadwick Boseman. He literally looks like him. Mm-hmm. But it inspired him in the same way that you're sort of speaking of. So let's translate this for everybody who doesn't get it. You're in another country. You don't speak the language. You're walking around. You know, you're learning maybe, I don't know, what's a nice country that you wouldn't speak the language, John? You'd think of one like maybe... France. Okay, perfect. So you're in France. You're walking around and um, everybody's speaking French or some other European language that's close by. And all of a sudden you hear English and you look over. And not only do you hear English, but you hear English with a Canadian accent, eh? And then you look over and you're like, oh, that's Canadian. I can tell. So what do you do? You don't know any other Canadians in France. You probably walk over and say, hey, bud. Where are you from in Canada, eh? And you speak all Canadian and you introduce yourself to that Canadian and you bring yourself together with that person. What brings you here? Are you on vacation? Oh, I'm working here too. It's nice to meet you. Let's grab a beer. And then you, oh, well, you know what? There's actually this, uh, I know another guy that I work. He's Canadian too. So let's invite him. We'll say hello. See, that is normal conversation. That, that, That would be normal to everybody to surround yourself with Canadians in France. And that's where this makes sense to me. Why wouldn't you want to surround yourself with people uh, that sound the same, that look the same, that put whatever same you want on there? Uh, Tall people, short people, who cares, right? And yet we can all relate to that. And so building community is not really about being from this place or that place or this color or that color. It becomes the situation where we're just surrounding ourselves with people that we think we have things in common with when, especially when it comes to what you're working towards. Is that, is that a fair look for everyone to understand sort of what that means? Because I think we get, sometimes people get cautious about the race conversation, John, they get like, Ooh, Calgary black chambers. Am I allowed to say that? Like people get worried that they're going to do something wrong. You know, yeah, I'd certainly agree. Uh, people seek commonalities, friend groups, families, common. You know, you, you like to feel that uh, camaraderie you have with somebody that, you know, has similar interests. Um, it's, I would say it's, it's, it's a bigger picture when it comes to uh, racial issues because visibly, like I mentioned, I'm not necessarily, you know, white or, white or black, um, but, you know, there's, there's something to be said um, for for sort of how that reflects sort of when there's there's two parties involved, right? When, when as a as a black person, there's there's fewer of you, and you get to you get to see people that look like you on a lesser basis, right? So when there's that commonality that you are the the predominant people, as you see in Africa, you know, I've spent some time down in Zimbabwe. And, you know, I didn't necessarily look fully like them, but I looked, you know, I, I was visibly black. It's it's different when you're a white person there because you get to see um, that you aren't part of the majority, you know, and, and that's that's the biggest thing. There, there's different groups will always seek each other out. Um, but when you're a minority group, you know, it, it does definitely hit different because there's more of something else. Than, than than of you and like I said I don't view myself as personally you know black I, I understand that visibly I'm black but that's why I'm black you, you know it's 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 one of those things that you're just born with and you can't hide and it's it's mm-hmm. interesting as it, having that as a commonality in 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 difference to you know we both like hockey 
Yeah. And I, I belong, right. is such an important phrase. And that's really fundamentally one of the core things that we seek, uh, is I belong. In fact, if we want to get into a deeply philosophical conversation, it's the lack of belonging that drives most of the decisions we make in life. So why wouldn't we want to belong? Now, that being said, let's talk about belonging, John, because the Calgary Black Chambers is not just the Calgary Black Chambers. I mean, the BIPOC community, uh, allies, uh, you talk an awful lot about that, right? Like, it's not like if somebody wanted to get involved, they have to be uh, black, they can get involved. And that's the cool part about what you've created here is this sort of allies, the BIPOC community, uh, making sure that everybody who wants to belong does belong and scholarships are a big way that you're making sure people belong. You know, fundamentally, the, the chambers is here to support, you know, BIPOC peoples, but like really just trying to make Calgary the best place to live and work for all for really everybody. I think we are um, sort of appreciative of our role in this, in that if you're going to help generally, you need to help everybody. You know, you know, there's certain play, ways that you can only help a few. Uh, but if you have the capacity and the ability, sh- you really should work to help as many individuals as possible. And that's where our scholarship and, and mentorship program r- really, I, I believe, helps the, the BIPOC community. And when we offer scholarships that, you know, like I said, you know, help students that wouldn't otherwise have the support that they need to go to university do so, uh, both on a, uh, on a Black and BIPOC basis. And then when you look at our mentorship program, which is open to all students. We, we understand, as, as the, uh, the late uh, Manmeet Buller, Honorable Manmeet Buller, um, understood, like, if you are going to be a community, when he designed his, um, his mission with, with the sick community in, in Northeast Calgary, like, you have to help all people. You can't be exclusive in that help, right? If you're really trying to make change, you have to make sure that change is, is coming across the community. And I think that's one of the things that draws people to to the Calgary Black Chambers, because a lot of our volunteers are not black. My wife actively volunteers as the secretary of the chambers. Um, we have other individuals in charge of our social media that are not black. And, and they, they take a very strong role with it because they understand the importance of really working to, to address some of the issues that face the black community. But it's not just because there are issues facing the only the black community, you know, if we address these issues, we can help all of Calgary, all of Alberta enjoy, you know, better lives and more cohesive, more tolerant uh, life experiences. Tell me about your mentorships or memberships and and um, and the scholarships numbers. Where does the money come from, and how much? Because the numbers, I'm only asking because I know the numbers are pretty awesome. Um, how much have you um, have you guys been able to put together last year and stuff for the scholarships? Because these numbers are fantastic. Yeah. So when we first organized the chambers, we just I said, and this was the number that came off the top of the head. I, I thought this would be really cool. Two thousand dollars for scholarships. So that was just you know when you have a bunch of random people in a room, some of which you, you've known for a long time, some of you, which you just met tonight, and you're saying you want to organize something. It, it, what kind of number do you throw out there? But that was at the start of our first year. At the end of the first year, we had raised uh, 28000 to distribute scholarships. Now we have uh, some partnerships I'm very proud of, a partnerships with the Calgary Flames, a partnership with KPMG in town, um, other, other scholarships that we've organized uh, with smaller partners. Uh, 
And then we also have our scholarships that are funded directly by our membership. And last year, we were able to distribute eight scholarships for a hundred, or sorry, a thousand five hundred dollars a piece. That's right? amazing. In total, we distributed thirty-three thousand. That was good. That was great. That's amazing. Uh, but as we got more set up, uh, you know, more and more people learned about our, our mission. Um, People have sort of kept in place their existing scholarships in terms of our corporate partners. Um, and then we have also had increased membership. But at the same time, we've had a huge increase in the public donors to our organization. I need to thank these people. They are anonymous to the Calgary Black Chambers. These monies are distributed to the Calgary Foundation and, and handled in our partnership with them. Uh, but because of the public support that we've had, people anonymous community members. We will be distributing 48,000 in scholarships in the 2022 uh, 20, uh, calendar year. Um, wow. So these, these kinds of uh, improvements uh, only because we're, we're doing this. I, I, I really do appreciate all the people that we have 20 volunteers with the chambers, all the hard work they're doing to get the word out that, that we are creating change. And that it's really easy to participate in that change. So I'm, I'm very happy with all uh, our very professional scholarship uh, committee who adjudicates on the scholarships. Last year, we had over 200. Uh, this year, we're, we're looking to rate, uh, see a lot more nominations and, and, and uh, applications than that. I, I'm very excited with how far we have come. It's very cool. For anybody who wants to learn more, just Google Calgary Black Chambers. You're going to get the website and, and then you can learn more about scholarships. You can refer that to your friends and your family, of course, when all those things. John Cornish uh, was a football player now with Calgary Black Chambers off on his professional career. Now, John, if you go backwards in time, uh, go backwards to uh, little John when you were in school. Now, you had football. You were lucky. You had football that could take you into um, college and into a career to get you started. Think back to some of the friends people around you, maybe some of the math nerds, science nerds, the writers, all of those people, because we know some of those people that didn't get the scholarships, that didn't go to school. We all know the really smart guy who went to school and then ended up happier working, uh, public facing, um, you know, minimum wage job. And we know some of the uh, really, really smart people that didn't have the resources to go to school. Think back to little John, junior high, high school time. How is it now when you can look back and see that those kids today could be getting resources from the Calgary Group of Black Chambers to chase their dreams? I mean, I was extraordinarily privileged um, to, to both have a high school that supported in St. Thomas, uh, St. Thomas More, supported my football career. And that, you know, my, I had a mom with, with five kids, single mom, um, putting her son through, through private school. I mean, th that was a difficult thing. Um, but because I was there, because I was part of that program, it supported me in my journey, uh, and which eventually led to a football scholarship, which, which led to a football career. Um, for everybody else, I think there's a, a level of, of support that, that is lacking. When we've looked at uh, university admission costs, um, it, it is incredible how much they have risen above inflation over the last three decades. And so it, whereas it used to be, yeah, work your way through college was a realistic thing. It's no longer realistic, right? You will have to find some support from somewhere. And if we as the Calgary Black Chambers can, can help provide that support, that, you know, 
everybody benefits. But I, ha I have to say this, when it comes to the actual adjudication on these scholarships, to see how these stories for, for these various students have unfolded, it's, it's mind-blowing and, and incredible how hard they have all worked to, to produce great uh, resumes for themselves, to help the community. And so on top of all that, you know, build out a, a educational um, structure in your life that you can continually reach the highest levels, right? It, it, when, it, when it comes to the education process, it is incredibly difficult because there's so many great stories in this city. And, and as and over this next uh, calendar year, the Calgary Black Chambers will, will be highlighting the stories of these uh, amazing students so everybody can see them. Uh, not only are the students amazing, I have been so fortunate to meet some of your colleagues too. And uh, in that conversation. Uh, can we acknowledge some of your inner circle with the Calgary Black Chambers, Warren, Brian, others who show up consistently in their free time to make sure that this thing happens? It's uh, It's been incredible where we've had our board uh, consisting of my vice president, uh, Chi Ilua Induil, and then we have our partnerships director, Kenny Ilu Chonwu, our oversight director, Clarence Winter, right? our events director, Charles Buchanan, a fellowship director, a quasi Antwi, and mentorship director, uh, Chucks Okafor. And then on top of that, my wife, corporate secretary. Two years we've met on a, on a weekly basis, mm -hmm. taking some uh, vacation days. On top of that, we've also met with our various groups. Our mentorship program happens with two classes every Tuesday, with six classes currently enrolled in the program. And then our fellowship director works with his team and they all are doing the social media, uh, LinkedIn posts, blogs uh, on a almost daily basis. And then it's, it's just been incredible to see how far the advocacy committee has come where you mentioned uh, Brian Lanier, uh, Warren Liberty Scott, and then we have, you know, Chi on there as well and, and Quasi and then some some other uh, volunteers. I think it's been incredible to see how hard people have worked over the last two years to actually see if we could make a difference. And we met, you know, aside from Quasi and, and Chucks, we met through my process of just walking up to people on the street. And these people have stepped up and volunteered that much time uh, of their own precious time. It's been uh, like the, 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 the amount of support that we've had for the chambers. Uh, it, it brings me to tears almost. If, if I could, if I would normally cry, it, it has been so incredible over the last two years to see what a small group of people can do to change the world. I often ask here on the shift, what are you going to do about it? You know, here on the show, we get politics, we get, you know, health issues, we get community issues, we get all that stuff. What are you going to do about it? And so I will take the second and acknowledge you and your hard work. You've been welcoming to me in your life and, and, um, and how far you've come, right? Um, it's really cool to see. I've been lucky because I've said we met so long ago the first times because you were still playing football all the time. And um, it's, it's so cool for me to see um, and to appreciate and enjoy watching the work you've done. And then as I've been able to meet some of the people around you, it's pretty amazing, John. You've done some pretty amazing things, man. And um, make sure you include 
I'll include you on the list if you won't of the amazing people that that make this all happen. CalgaryBlackChambers.ca. Go there, educate yourself. And hey, you know what? You can go there and feel inspired for your community. You can go there and feel inspired, get involved with this community. Either way, that's the whole point of all of it. And scholarships, pass on the scholarships to anybody you know that could benefit from that because that's really what this is fundamentally all about and growing the community of the Calgary Black Chambers. John Cornish. Thank you, brother, for being here. Appreciate it. It's good to see you. Yeah, Shane, thank you so much for supporting our message and, and giving so much support of your own and volunteer time uh, to the Calgary Black Chambers. This is the Shift Podcast. Steve Stemming, how are you, brother? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good, thank you very much. Thanks for being here. The segment is called <laughs> What the Hell Should We Watch This Weekend, by the way, Ryan. <laughs> Oh, you stepping with some movie things and stuff? It was my show for 30 seconds. I thought I'd play it around was. with it. I totally did not forget what the segment was called. Okay. I'm going to rename it. <laughs> How's life in Penticton, Stephen? It's all right. It's all right. It's getting nicer. I mean, I live a, you know, a couple blocks away from the beach. So like once it hits yep. that peak time, it's, it's much nicer to go outside and, and, and take in the rays, as you will. The rays? Very fancy. I like that yeah. pub down the street from you on the other side of the airport, the one that's right on the highway that's really loud when the cars drive by, but the patio's like right there, right across from the campground on uh, the south side. Uh, we're not talking to, like my the one that's close to me is the barley mill, and it's been around forever. I dig that one. That's that's the that's. Are the you still living on the south side? I'm, but yeah, I'm on the Skaha side. For those who yeah. are in the know, yeah, I'm in the, in the know. Yeah, yeah. When you go when you go west, and then before you get to the campground on the right hand side, there's another campground. They have some yurts there, and then there's like a pub thing. It's like all outdoors. Oh yeah, yeah. I know which one you're talking about. I haven't actually ventured to that one. Yeah, but I know exactly which one you're talking about. Yeah, it's a good time. There you go, partying in Penticton. That's who we're talking about here on the shift. What the hell should we watch this weekend? SteveStebbing.ca for the whole blog, podcast, and all the other things that he gets up to. Shall we just get started with the movies? Let's do it. Let's do it. The AV Club's coming up for you next. First on the list was Steve Stebbing Morbius. I have powers that can only be described as superhuman. But there's a cost. Now, I face a choice. To hunt. And consume blood. Or die. You will have monsters within us. It's up to us to control it. What if I can't? Well, that's not healthy. Tell us about Morbius. Yeah, so this is Marvel, but uh, with a couple caveats here, because this is Sony Marvel. So it's not really part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's in association with Marvel, not quite Marvel Studios. Uh, And also, this was supposed to come out a couple of years ago. To put that in perspective, this was supposed to come out a few weeks after Sonic the Hedgehog 1, which Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is coming out next Friday. So in the time that they delayed this movie, they filmed a whole nother freaking movie and did all the CG effects for like a heavy CG movie and put that out already. So it's like this one was a long time coming. Is it worth the wait? Nah, not even a little bit. It is corny. It is completely forgettable i just saw it tonight i don't think i'll even think about it as comes saturday sunday 
Like it is so easily digestible that it is already gone. And uh, I mean, it's it's all feels been there, done that. Even though we're doing this vampire Marvel hero thing, it's just nothing in this works. It's kind of haphazardly thrown together, and yeah, just complete forgettable fluff. Beautiful. I I hate it when you sugarcoat. Um, you I don't remember what I it never was called will. already. There you go. Next on the list was Steve Stebbing, Apollo Ten and a Half. A space age childhood. As our kid. Mission for what? We accidentally built the lunar module. A little too small. How'd that happen? Listen, are you good at math? Yeah. Do you get a perfect 100 on every test? No. Okay. We need a kid like you to test this accidentally smaller version on the lunar surface and soon. Stan. You're our only hope. Okay. All right. Tell us about uh, the cute little kid who goes to space. Yeah, this is an interesting film because it comes from Richard Linklater, who's one of my favorite filmmakers ever. And he kind of combines like two of the very interesting things he's done in his career. Because on one side, this is like his film Boyhood uh, quite a bit, like kind of like a coming of age story. But at the same time, is it a digitally shot film that was animated over top of like he did with his films Waking Life and A Scanner Darkly. And basically, Richard Linklater is kind of getting introspective in this film and kind of uh, getting nostalgic about his growing up in Texas and everything. But at the same time of telling like this fantastical story about this 10 and a half year old kid that is uh, hired by NASA to go into space in a lunar module that was made too small and was only capable of housing a kid now. So it has this fantastical effect to it, but as well as kind of going through the American history of the 60s and everything and what that was like on a kid growing up in, in, in Texas. Uh, and I found it really sweetly fun and, and well put together as narrated by Jack Black, who I thought is like a really great conduit to be Richard Linklater in a way. And it's kind of funny as well. Like, like in that clip there, there's just some, like some subtle satire to it. That's really great. Um, and those who love Richard Linklater will really like this film. What the hell should we watch this weekend? SteveStepping.ca for more info on the blog, the bubble. Welcome to the start of production of Cliff Beast 6. Thank you for joining us in our bubble. Please make sure you're wearing proper PPE. Physical touch is, of course, off the table. <laughs> so I would recommend making sweet eyes at each other. I'll show you what that looks like. <laughs> this is so exciting. It's like my movie posters have come to life. You will soon learn to hate these people. Pandemic ideas coming to life, Steve? Yeah, pretty much. And and I mean, a good cast in this one, Karen Gillan, David Duchovny, Keegan-Michael Key, uh, and uh, the director and writer's own daughter, Iris Apatow, is in this one because this is a Judd Apatow film. Uh, and yeah, he had quarantine and, and pandemic on the brain and decides to make this film about a bunch of spoiled actors that are put into uh, an isolation because they are filming their newest film in their giant franchise. And I think that's the extent of how great this film is because it really... I don't know what happened to Judd Apatow. He's rapidly 
de- declining in, in the the quality of films that he's putting out. Uh, I mean, The King of Staten Island, I enjoyed with Pete Davidson, but the third act is just an absolute mess, and that bleeds into the to the bubble, which just feels like a complete mess from start to finish. That almost feels like it would work better as little vignettes or sketches because I think I, it really feels like that's how it was written. It just is funny in bursts here and there. And I, it also has Pedro Pascal and how dare Judd make a film where I didn't like Pedro Pascal, especially after the Mandalorian. Like, come on, man. I believe he's here at the moment. Oh, he's, he's in Calgary. Yeah. Doing that, uh, that movie. Um, I, uh, I think it's funny whether this is as deep as the idea pool gets. Mm-hmm. Let's do a movie about being locked up. Um, God, it sounds cuddly. Steve Stebbing.ca. Um, <laughs> I'm Shane Hewitt. What the hell should we watch this weekend? Sing to or Moon Knight? Steve, your pick. Moon Knight. Moon Knight. Yeah. Oh my God, you're alive. What's wrong with you, Mark? Why did you call me Mark? That must be very difficult. The voice in your head. Shut up! There's chaos in you. Embrace the chaos. Available on Disney Plus. That's right. New Marvel Cinematic Universe TV series. Oscar Isaac brings the the multiple personality character of Moon Knight to the screen. You've got a villainous uh, Ethan Hawke in this as well. Uh, and I mean, the way that Oscar Isaac can slip between uh, playing this uh, this kind of nervous and awkward uh, hotel, I mean, museum gift shop uh, employee. And this, uh, you know, former U.S. Marines dude that can just fight and kick ass and everything. It, the switch between the two is so well done. Oscar Isaac is one of my favorite actors on the planet. And uh, the bad news for me is I've seen the first four episodes of the series and I have to wait till the end of April to see anything new. But the good news for everybody is those episodes are awesome. Um, it's unlike anything I've seen before, uh, and, and it may lose, uh, some people here and there, but I just think it's so deliciously weird and I loved every second of it. Thanks for listening to the shift podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Spotify, and curious cast.ca.